All right, let's open up our Bibles to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16. This is a text I looked at while in Africa, so we're going to look at it as well. And we're talking about toppling the idols we've created. This is sort of an Africa debrief, so I'm going to share some things with you, but also we're going to look at this passage. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Ezekiel 16, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of our great and glorious God. Ezekiel 16, verse 1. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says Lord Yahweh to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No eye had pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for your soul was abhorred on the day you were born. Then I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood. So I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Indeed, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and came into the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed, and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares Lord Yahweh. Then I washed you with water, rinsed your blood off from you, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of purpoise skin on your feet. And I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I also adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a splendid crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil. So you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your name went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my majesty which I set on you, declares Lord Yahweh. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your name, and you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You took some of your clothes, made for yourself high places of various colors, and played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. You also took your splendid jewelry made of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. Then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them and gave my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey with which I had you eat, you gave before them for a soothing aroma. So it happened, declares Lord Yahweh. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters, whom you had borne to me, and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and gave them up to idols by causing them to pass through fire. Besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, you were squirming in your blood. Let's pray. 
Our Father and Holy God, we ask that you would let us search out and examine our ways and let us return to Yahweh, to you. Give us strength by your Spirit to think deeply about our lives and what idols we may be either holding on to or unwittingly contributing to. Through Christ our Lord we pray, and amen. amen. You can be seated. Well, it's good to be back after a couple of weeks of travel, and uh, I tell you, being on an airplane for nearly 24 hours just one way is, <laughs> can take a lot out of you, uh, and I'm still kind of recovering, but God has been good. I'm always uh, beyond happy to endure such things. I, I do absolutely love um, Africa. Um, one of the many reasons I enjoy doing mission work there is because it is in many ways quite unlike America. Uh, to some degree, there are overlapping cultural expressions, but in other ways, it's entirely different. Uh, for example, in Lusaka, Zambia, Lusaka is the capital, it's very much westernized. Uh, of course, Cape Town, South Africa, has its western influence as well. So they have their cell phones, their KFC, <laughs> their uh, Nike clothing, and the English language, and so on. So there's a lot of Western influence, and especially in the places I've gone. But largely, the Western influence has hit. I always wonder, and I think when I travel and go to these places, like, how, what do they perceive of America? And usually I'll ask them, but it is fascinating that, that uh, the way the English language works, I can go to the college there and they're all speaking English and they understand me just like I'm talking to you. And so it's quite nice. But the impact of, of our culture has been worldwide, no doubt. But I also know that Africans think much different than we Americans. They are not so individualized like we are. Meals together can take two, three, four, five hours just sitting there eating for like four hours, <laughs> just picking here and there and getting tea and following up with some coffee. And, uh, but the meal, the meal, though, in that culture is more than just dumping food down your throat. That's kind of what we're used to. It's like we just got to hurry up and eat and dump it down our throats and then move on with our lives. But for them, they pause and they take time. And that is because it's an opportunity to build trust with one another. It was the same way with Jesus in the Middle Eastern culture of his day. You, food was a very important, uh, almost sacred, dare we say, opportunity to fellowship with one another, to build trust, to strengthen the loyalty bond. And obviously, family ties are very strong, but friendship really matters in Africa, I would say, in a way that it doesn't here. Uh, that's why in Zambia, they will give you a name. And so I was given a new surname, and my, my name, I'm supposed to introduce myself as Pastor Mutale, and it means strong. And Iran is, is Pastor Piri, which means mountain, and so together we are a strong mountain. Uh, and uh, it's sort of a reflection, I think, of, of our time. So when I introduce, every time I introduce myself and use the name, they roar in laughter. So it's quite funny. That's like if, an, if we have an African visit us, and Lord willing, some of our contacts will be here, uh, we'll just give them like the last name Smith or Jones or something. <laughs> and it would be that comical for us too. But they do love it. It's, that naming is important because names mean something. And for them, me being a guest there and having a new last name, Mutale, it's just, it's hilarious, but it's a sign of friendship. 
uh, and it's certainly a warm, warm time. But we know that friendship requires loyalty. It requires truthfulness. You can't be friends with someone if they're not truthful with you. Uh, you can't be friends with someone if they show and exhibit no signs of loyalty. If they're not concerned enough to love you and express themselves to you, then you can't really be friends. And so this sort of cultural dynamic, I think they have it in a way that we don't. It requires us, friendship requires us to be forthcoming in our opinions and not being so bothered as by what someone might think about us. Uh, no matter whatever they might think, you just, you're just being honest. You're an honest person. You're not having to guess what somebody might be thinking. Now, Africans can struggle like, like we can in that area, um, but the communal bond in some ways is much stronger than it is here. Friendship doesn't mean telling people what you want, what you think they want to hear. Uh, it most certainly does not mean people-pleasing either. Uh, Zambians are generally more passive, docile, calm, um, in fact, if you're walking down the street and I took you there and it was your first time and we passed some, they have that look. But then you wave and they're like, you know. So it's kind of like, it's funny, you, you, would, you possibly would feel intimidated, but you're really not. And so I've, I've learned to just throw my weight around. Uh, <laughs> no matter who I'm talking to, just, hey, what's your name? You know, and, uh, but they're very uh, calm and it's not all bad. They're jovial, they're happy. Uh, I really enjoy that about Zambians. The Congolese, Ron will tell you this, the Congolese are way more aggressive and ad attitudinal, <laughs> um, but that's because they've been at war a lot. There's a lot of sort of edginess about the Congolese, and they're just north of the Zambians, so it's striking, it's striking the difference. But none of that, it doesn't matter because family, in this culture, family and community takes priority over the individual self. And the point I'm getting at here is that culturally speaking, we Americans tend to think that relationships can be easily discarded because our main concern is ourselves. And so we can just easily write someone off instead of like doing the right thing and confronting sin. Ah, they're just away with them and I'll never ever deal with them ever again. And then they write you off and they don't ever try to resolve something. But that's like an American mindset. That is not what happens in Africa. You don't just write people off. You, you deal with it. And I think we could learn a lot from, from that. And, and again, the reason that Americans think this way is because our, we are the point. <laughs> what we think matters more, and, and we are very individualized, and so that tends to express itself. And I think that's why community can be a challenge in the Western church. And churches will spend all this time like trying to organize all these events throughout the week and, and they, they, they really want to foster a sense of community. And I think that that's a challenge when the individual self is what matters most. Um, they're not doing that in Africa. They're not having to create all these programs to try to get people together. You just get together and you enjoy the time. And I will say furthermore that the breakdown of the family in the West could almost be described as our own fault because we're selfish. So breakdown in family, breakdown in community, and it's all because of our, ourselves. We are, we are of the unconscious mindset, I would argue, that when making decisions, we do what is best for us rather than what is best for the family or for the community. 
And I know that's hard to even imagine, but that's quite literally how they think. And I think that's first and foremost one of the things I learned over the years going there is that when you make a decision, usually it's just what's best for me. I don't care. So people will move for a job and then they're like, well, we'll just church hop and find something we like. You know, it's like shopping for your favorite ice cream. And then you just sort of, okay, well, we'll land here. And then you're there for a couple years and then you leave. And then people are just in and out, in and out all the time. Um, but not in Africa. They don't think in those terms. They think the, the family and community matters more than my individual self. And I, and I will say that's why the gay agenda is so repulsive to Africans. We talk about this a lot there. It's so repulsive for, for this basic reason. Self-expression and self-fulfillment really isn't at the top of the list. But that's what we're doing here. And they're, they're, they're not. And they're aghast to learn some of the things that we teach them about what is coming. And we can, you can say all you want. No, no, no. But when you have the United Nations involved, they want you to be fraught with demons. Now, I always learn quite a bit when I go, go to Africa. In our Bible colleges and seminaries, we, we call what we're going to talk about today missiology, and that's the study of missions. So having an appropriate missiolo a missiological worldview. Um, whenever we go into another culture, it's, it's important to be a good missiologist, to not, to not just know what they think, but why they think it. That's, that's when you can really start to know somebody. Not just what they think, but why they think it that way. Why do they think that way? What are the presuppositions that give rise to what it is they think? Now, I went with the plan to talk about the rule and reign of Christ, the supremacy and primacy of God's kingdom, uh, the perniciousness of idolatry and so forth. I mean, we had a game plan going in, and, uh, and, and we executed, uh, I think, you know, in a, in a really help, helpful way for them. But I have to be honest with you, I end up always learning far more than I could ever teach. And at the University of Zambia, I taught the, the students on two, two occasions about love, relationships, what God demands from, the, from us in those arenas. It's their second week, back, second week back at college, so that it's love week. And I hear that and I'm like, oh, gooey, you know, love week. But I actually got there and I realized, no, 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 what they're talking about is relationships because they, they, like us, go to college to find a girl, right? The guys do. And so they're talking about relationships, and, and the students are always very attentive. At one point, we were laughing so hard, they about fell out of their seats. I just shared my own story and some of the things that, uh, uh, that I did in pursuit of my wife, and they thought it was quite entertaining. But we had a really good time. Uh, I, I preached in a church, we preached with a few pastors and other leaders for a few nights, um, kind of like a mini conference of sorts, but Ron and I both kind of one-two punch, was, we taught a lot about the dangers of idolatry, warning the Africans about their idols so they don't, warning them about our idols too, so that we don't find, we don't want them finding our idol, idols attractive. Um, and we're not shy about telling them what their idols are too. In Cape Town, so I spent the first week in, in Lusaka and then flew down to Cape Town and spent a few days with my missionary friend Charles, who, Lord willing, will be here preaching at the end of September, so you get to meet him, and he is, he's a phenomenal guy. We, oh, man, we laugh so much. 
but it, we're also very serious. So there's like a healthy balance, you know. Um, when I was in South Africa, Charles organized a lunch meeting. We spent some time with some pastors and leaders, one of which who led a, well, they'll, you know, a revolt of sorts, but they stood against the COVID lockdown nonsense. And they gathered almost 200 pastors and boldly marched in Pretoria, the capital, which is Cape Town's southwest. Pretoria is up by Joburg in the northeast. But they marched against the nonsense. And I'll tell you, that was a bold move because it's a communist government. So Kaya is one of the guys I met, and I gave him a big hug, and I just said, man, I, I don't know much about you, but you did that, and so we're friends, you know, and he, he thought that was kind of cool. And uh, Another interesting thing while I was there, I, I attended a memorial service for the St. James Church massacre that had happened on July 25th, 1993. So exactly 30 years ago, last Tuesday, was this massacre that happened, and it was a rainy Sunday night, 93. Terrorists uh, barged in, these revolutionary guys barged into the church with guns and grenades, and they killed 11 people. But Charles is the guy who fired two shots back at them, which made the terrorists retreat. And uh, you, you should read his books. He's, he's written about it. But I got to ride around with a local legend for a few days. I mean, it's just <laughs> phenomenal. Uh, and I'll tell you the story. It's a big church. I, I posted about it online, but it's a very, very sizable congregation. And I, when we were leaving, Charles took me up. I wanted to know, where were you when that happened? I mean, this is an incredible story. And the Wikipedia page about it is actually fairly accurate. So if you want to look that up, just look up the St. James Church Massacre, and you'll, you'll find it. But he took me up to where he was, and, and we're talking like, you know, maybe 50 rows or more. It was kind of up, and they barged in the door here, and, uh, you know, gr some grenades went off. It was kind of chaos, but Charles, he was trained two years in the South African military. It's like a mandatory thing, I think, for some young men. But he had an ankle holster. He pulled out his, his 38 snub nose revolver and shot back. He got down on the pew and, and shot back and uh, hit one of them. Crazy start part of the story is, though, afterwards he led one of them to Christ. And he still visits them while they're in prison. In fact, Ron and he and Ron were both preaching up there, I believe, Saturday, yesterday. But in incredible. Uh, it was a blessing to be there. Again, 11 people died. Many were injured. I even met Lulu. She's an elderly woman who survived the event. She was serving tea and coffee afterwards, so we were spending some time together and... Um, I have more to share on that in a bit, but I want to just take a look at the text I preached in Zambia. So just kind of focus our attention here for a moment on Scripture. I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but I want to summarize this passage. So Ezekiel, in the first five verses, is told to prophesy against Israel. And here, Israel is seen as a helpless and unloved baby girl who's been dumped into a field and left to perish on her own. That's the condition she was in. And that's, frankly, the condition we're in before Christ saves us. We're, we're bloodied mess out in the field. She, in this case, um, was hated by her parents, who happened to be, in this instance, she, an Amorite father and a Hittite mother. Such an insult, you know. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. But that's who they had turned to for sustenance. They had walked away from Yahweh. They chose the pagan gods, and that's where they essentially what had happened. They, they wanted to unadopt themselves 
to be adopted by a pagan family. So her self-induced plight was re real. And then in verses 6 through 14, we find that God has pity on the child. He, he rescues her, cleanses her, clothes her, raises her, raises this baby girl. Soon after, she becomes a young woman. And when she's of age, God marries her, dresses her in fine linen, and gives her lavish gifts. And she is adorned so that the nations might see her beauty and learn from her. Uh, that's the point of it. When God chose Israel, he says a couple of times in Isaiah that they're to be a light to the nations. And you remember our Lord told us that we are salt and light too. We are a city on a hill. That's what the beauty is for. She was dressed up so that the nations might see her beauty and then come and worship Yahweh. But alas, in verses 15 onward, Israel, the bride, betrays her husband. She betrays her husband and prefers to play the role of a harlot. So she goes on to commit spiritual adultery with the gods of the other nations. And rather than bringing glory to Yahweh, her husband, she uses his gifts to entice nations to idol worship. Now that's an interesting comment there. What God gives us good gifts, but what for? To worship him or create idols out of them. And that's what Israel had done. Israel had sacrificed her sons and daughters to idols, and the idols devoured them. Verse 20. She slaughtered God's children, and in verse 21, gave them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Literally, historically, we're talking about infanticide. That's what the nations would do. Canaanites would do that. They would throw their babies into the fire. And we're no different today. Moloch is still around and alive and well. In this case, Israel, she, this bride, had forgotten where she had come from, naked and bare in a field, barely alive. In Revelation, we're warned about not forgetting our first love. When you forget what God has done, where you were in your naked apostasy, and then God brings you through Christ by the power of His Spirit into salvation, when you forget that, the natural tendency is to start worshiping other idols. Isn't that true? Like when we forget who we are in Christ, what do we do? We sin. We start chasing idols. And that's the warning here. Ezekiel later sp uh, speaks about how she fanned the flames of God's anger because of her promiscuity with Egypt. Egypt's mentioned in verse 26. She couldn't find enough lovers with Assyria, verse 28. Even with Babylon, she wasn't satisfied, in verse 29. Now, idol, idols always leave you wanting more. That's part of the point here. Couldn't find enough lovers. Well, that's what idols do. They want, they want more from you, and they want you to give them everything, and they will never, ever, ever square with you. What does idolatry look like in terms of the covenant with God. Look at verse 25. You spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. You didn't know that was in your Bible, did you? So instead of staying married to Yahweh and being a one-man woman, she became a prostitute having sexual relations with anyone and everyone. She was a harlot, a whore, and if you want to know what God thinks of idolaters, think of prostitution. It's complete apostasy and debauchery. And those who love sin will always seek out more sin. That is why it's related to this concept of harlotry, is because we are the bride of Christ. And when we choose sin, we are choosing adultery. 
See, God's punishment for idolaters is spelled out in the rest of the chapter. She will be turned over to God's enemies in verse 27. She will be stripped naked before them, meaning God will take all the gifts away. He will just take them away. That's why you start to shipwreck your life. You can shipwreck your family in, in a moment's notice. You can shipwreck your church. You can, do, you can tank a lot of things with just one bad decision and one bad word. But she was stripped naked, verse 37 through 41. She will be repaid for her multitudinous sins. There's in the rest of the chapter. She will eventually be restored after God's anger is finished, verse 53. And finally, at the end of the chapter, she will be ashamed for her grotesque sins. After all is said and done, God will pardon her, restore her, and bring her back by grace. But what exactly was the problem? Idols. Self-made idols, taking the gifts that God gives you, God blesses you with money, and you can either use it or, you know, it will use you. <laughs> taking those gifts and using them for our own lustful purposes. And that is, that is, at its core, what sin and idolatry really is. Sin and idolatry is self-made religion, which in terms of the covenant that, that God has made with us, is spiritual and actual adultery. It's preferring our lusts over the worship of God. Now, our job is not to try to maintain idolatry. We must topple them. Idols must be toppled. They must be crushed. We are to eradicate them from our lives. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And notice, we need to eradicate them from our culture as well. We have to be able to see what the idols are and then vehemently go against them. And I think that that's where our churches have gone wrong. We haven't been, we've been more excited about pleasing our own emotions than going after the idols. But this is a great illustration. Hosea is actually an entire story when Hosea is told to marry Gomer, a prostitute. And that's a, a picture of God's relationship with Israel. So this imagery of harlotry and adultery is, is always used to talk about sin and what sin actually does. So that's the text, and we looked at that and, and kind of built on that when we were in Zambia. And we always ask, how shall, how shall we then live? Well, this was, my, this was my fourth time in Africa, my third time in Zambia, and my first time in South Africa, and, and it was a real blessing. People have asked how to go, better than I could have imagined. Far better, exceedingly better than I could have ever imagined. Uh, I learned quite a bit, I believe, you know, I, I, I believe the teaching and preaching, the relationship building, that's a huge part of being a good missionary. You have to build relationships. It was incredibly fruitful. Uh, but you should know something. <laughs> I was working on this while I was on the, somewhere over Africa on the plane, and it kind of occurred to me, like, man, this is, there's a stark contrast here. Mission trips today have largely become photo ops and fundraisers. It's an opportunity to give the appearance of self-sacrifice without much actual self-sacrifice. And, I, and many, many Africans have picked up on this, and they know how to game the system. Every time I go to Africa, Ron will say the same thing. You go, and then you start getting tagged on Facebook, and then all of a sudden, I'm being bugged by some guy in India for money. I'm like, leave me alone. Block. Like, if you want to figure out a way to partner, great, I'm sure you are poor, but the answer isn't me giving you money. Like, you have a larger thing to, you know, 
And that's, that's kind of our perspective of going to Africa, is we're not just get, giving money to places. We want to see them repent of their cultural idols and build something in obedience. But that's most mission trips today, that's what they are. They know how to game the system there. It's not always the case, so I don't want to be pessimistic, but it is largely the case. And one merely needs to learn about David Livingstone and his work in Africa to know that he wasn't there to snap a photo for Instagram. I mean, there were some tough times. Now, churches in the West, they do waste millions and millions of dollars sending young teenagers to Africa only to show up, snap some photos, and then leave with no real intent on long-term cultural change. They don't, they don't even know what the gospel is, at least in the large, fully-orbed view. Whatever they think they know, it's largely pietistic. It's like, I'm going to Africa so people can go to heaven. And uh, if that's your gospel, you can make them twice the son of hell if you're not careful. But a good missionary one who understands missiology, who understands culture, knows how to apply theology to culture, is there for a larger focused, future-focused purpose, we could say. Um, when, I, when I was uh, giving an example, I met a man in Cape Town who was heading up Abolish Abortion South Africa. And after this, the 30th anniversary, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the massacre happened, after that, time we sang and the guy preached and it was, it was a good time um, but Charles introduced me to this gentleman named Billy and so we became like immediate friends he's kind of this big burly guy with that you know accent they love my accent but I think theirs is way cooler uh, but he he's a he himself is a theonomist he's a friend of some of my friends and uh, just talking to him he said oh yeah we're, we're doing abolish abortion in South Africa and we're trying to get posters made and all this stuff and I'm just like fired up like yes let's go where's the devil kick him right now you know and um, so he, he's invited me to come back to help them and and um, and as we develop abolitionist rising and some of the things that we've been working on behind the scenes Lord willing we can do something like that and broader the abolitionist movement overseas but the point I'm trying to make is that mission trips are largely useless I'll just tell you they, they really are they might help build a church building which it's like, okay, maybe that's helpful, but like, why aren't they building it? What is the cultural reason why they aren't? Oh, because they don't have future focus. Or, oh, because they don't know how to manage their, their, their money. They don't, like there's things that are, they're in this position for a reason. Why is it that reason? I'm not saying it's wrong to help them build a church building. You know, you just throw some bricks together, whatever, you know, it's, it's fine. But why are they in that position? And if you're not willing to help them get there, how could they ever be better prepared for the next generation? That's how we think when we go. So usually, though, there's never any real follow-up. There's never any real meaningful relationship building. It's not Great Commission missions. It's just sort of like Band-Aid on a shotgun wound missions. And you, you, have, you have ill-equipped leaders taking unequipped teenagers to play with a few children while the cameras are rolling and they rarely get around to sharing the full orbed gospel message. They have no plans to actually confront the idolatry. They have no plans to see to it that the comprehensive biblical world and life view is inculcated deep within the cultural conscience of the people there. That's what we do. 
And I, again, I'm not trying to be so pessimistic, but that's, that's what happens. And we hear the stories. And Ron could tell you probably a dozen stories of going and talking. Oh, there's a bunch of white people from America. Cool. What are you doing here? Oh, we don't know. Well, where's your leader? What are you doing here? Well, we're, we're not entirely sure. You don't know? You know how much flights cost? And you're doing this? But that's kind of what it is. And I think, though, what I'm speaking about creates an, an, a, unique, a unique dynamic. What invariably happens is that people from America get to go and soothe their selfish, egotistical conscience for a while, while the Africans think that the money from the West is their only way out. That's just what it is. It may offend some people, but that's just the way it is. They look around and see American culture with all of its advancements, sophistication, all of its wealth, and rather than work to build upon it, they seek to depend upon it. And obviously not every African is this way, so please don't misunderstand me. I'm simply pointing out that this cultural dynamic doesn't actually work, and it is prevalent. Um, whenever Ron and I go there, we don't praise America, because that's what they, they, Zambians love Donald Trump, and they were mad when Biden won. Yeah, I wasn't happy either. And, and I had a conversation, we've had this a few times, but you know, is, is if Biden's bad, Trump is good. And, and I'm like, You're, it's not that easy. Like, they're all bad. <laughs> and because we're missing the, you know, the basics of constitutional republic and we're, we're missing some things. And so it's not that simple. But all they see, I'll tell you this, they know more about American politics than most Americans know about American politics. But they kind of see it from a distance and they kind of have this idealism. And, and we tell them, look, I don't, we don't praise America. We are... We tell them we're not overly fond of us because we're exporting nothing but pietistic dribble to the world. And that's not helping anyone. And our culture, we tell them we've apostatized we, we're, with the homo agenda, the child sacrifice, the whole thing, the woke stuff. We're just, we're gone. I love America in its ideal state. I promise you, I do. But in its current state, it's working against the gospel. So we have to confront those things. And so that's kind of the conversation we end up having there. While at Zambia, <clears throat> I mentioned this earlier, I was able to preach and teach at the university. We did some preaching and teaching at a conference hosted by a church. Uh, the pastor of that church is a friend I've known for five years and we continue to develop that. Uh, we did two television programs, which are always very interesting. I don't like TV, it makes me nervous. One of them was live too. It's like, oh boy, I really can't mess this up. Uh, while in Cape Town, I did two radio programs, um, which I'm going to put those up on the podcast feed at some point. Uh, we, did a, we, did, we did visit an orphanage. I taught a bunch of young kids how to do fist bumps, which is kind of fun. Um, we may have an opportunity, by the way, as a church to partner there. Uh, we met with the leaders, these women who are running it, and uh, it's, it's just imagine the worst thing possible. That's what it is. Um, but we have an opportunity to help them possibly um, in the future. A Lord willing, Cross and Crown Seminary will have its first and second African students in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, I met a young man named Martin. I got a taxi, got in the car. He's a Christian, wants to plant a church, wants further theological education. Let's talk. He ended up coming to some of our stuff and we developed a friendship, which was really neat. 
The, uh, the South Africa trip portion of it was more exploratory. I, as I mentioned, I spent some time with Charles. He introduced me to some of his friends and some of their incredible work. Plans were discussed, may do a Health for All of Life conference in Cape Town uh, in the future, possibly, Lord willing. But again, I, I, the trip went way better than I could have ever hoped. And, and God is good. I believe there are big things ahead for some of these relationships. Thank you for your sacrificial giving, your time, your, your, uh, your time in, in prayer. It was, it, was, it was really, really good. I have other stories that I, I will share, but that'll be personal stories. Now, I want to get back to the, this topic of idolatry. <clears throat> the challenging thing about idolatry and the identification of said idols is that oftentimes we don't want to admit that our hearts have been captured by them. We know that the Bible does not allow us to develop, maintain, create, handle, or worship idols. It's just off limits, right? We know that. And Christ is exclusive, and he doesn't share his glory with another. We, we know that too. But idolatry can easily become unnoticeable. And why is that? Well, the reason, the reason we don't see the idol is because by it we see everything else. Does that make sense? The reason we don't see idols sometimes is because we're using that to look through everything else. Um, Worldview is like a pair of glasses that we put on. You, when I first got glasses, it was awkward. And anybody who ever gets glasses for the first time knows it's really awkward. There's something on your face, and it's just there. Yeah, but give it time, right? I've been wearing glasses a long, long time. I don't even think of them anymore. Well, that's what a worldview does. If you're so familiar with an idol, you forget because they're just, it's just there, and you're seeing everything else through it. And that's what worldview is. There are assumptions we make. It's these... They're, they're unconscious, bona fide assumptions about how we see the world. And everyone has them. I have them. You have them. We do. If we're not careful, we can become very accustomed to them. But we're not permitted to have them either, the Bible says. So what do we do? Well, we need to figure out what they are. We need to make war. We need to topple them. Uh, we repent for the adultery. We search them out. We destroy them no matter the cost. You ask someone, speak into my life, please, tell me the truth. And you have those conversations. And we here in America, by the way, we also don't presume upon the graces of God. Don't ever presume upon them. Cherish them. We here in America are rather self-sufficient. It makes us hyper-individualized. And it makes us very hesitant to share our hearts with another. It makes community life, church life, virtually impossible. That's why people were so quick to go to online church during the pandemic, because it was easily discarded. No one cared. I can do what I need to do online in, in the comfort of my own pajamas. But whatever you find ultimate, whatever you find supreme, whatever you find the focus of all glory, that's your center of worship. And if it isn't King Jesus, then we have an idol. We have fornicated with another. And we need to be resolute about this not just in our own life, but in the life of our church, the life of this, our world, our culture. And idols are legion. Um, these are some of the idols we talked about there. One of them could be history, or sometimes it's called historicism. People think they're victims of fate's unbiased wrath, whatever fate is, as if it's a god. We're simply caught in the gears of time. There's nothing we can do to shape the future. Just give up, wait, hopefully the rapture will come. That's how many people 
function. I'll tell you, many Africans think like this. I, this is why the taxi drivers there always drive on empty. I've shared this story before, but they all are empty. Every single one. And we, we ask them, why are you on empty? Well, uh, we'll stop and get petrol. I'm like, but why didn't you pick me up with a full tank? Ron gets really rowdy with them. Think about it. This is a basic thing in the culture. It's something we noticed a few years ago, and it's still a problem. Why are you on empty? I'll tell you why. It's this idol. They can't fathom spending all of that money in the moment it takes to fill up the car with petrol, gas, so that they don't waste time filling seven other times later when they could fill it for the day and then drive, do as many drives as you can and make more money. That's not forward thinking. It's not future thinking. It's not entrepreneurial at all. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. There's an idol there. They don't plan well. They don't manage their time and their resources well. There are gold mines, by the way, that are sitting there untouched. Lots of gold. Lots of gold. And rather than digging with their hands in their spades like the Congolese kids do, the Zambian thinks, I need a backhoe before I can do anything. And backhoes require U.S. dollars. And I'm not here to pick on them because they know what we think and we tell them. You don't need a backhoe. You go figure it out. Get a shovel and start. If it's that bad, I mean, you have gold for crying out loud. People will pay top dollar for this gold. You could be a billionaire. Well, I don't have a backhoe. I'll take my kids and we'll start digging. Like what? We'll get a private jet and take Cross and Crown over there and we'll figure it out. So I'm not just picking on them because we do this stuff too. We do this stuff too. We struggle to manage our time well, read our Bibles, spend time in prayer. We struggle to plan for the future, manage everything. I mean, we, we struggle too. But you have to ask the question, why is that the case? These cultural things happen. Why do they happen? Not what is happening, why do they happen? And we too assume that things will just happen rather than putting our hands to work. We just expect things to happen. So many people just sit around, maybe I'll win the lottery someday. A, you have to play it, but B, like what? Is that your game plan? Possibly a one in a billion chances? Idols of time, idols of history, idols of humanism are many too. When men ascend to deity through the arm of the state. We warn the Zambians every single time, do not take money from the United Nations. If you do, the exchange is this, abortion and sodomite marriage. They will give you 50 million US dollars. You start talking like that, everybody, oh, we'll take it. But that's the, that's the catch. The United Nations will give it to you if you allow these things to take place. That's the trade-off. It's Western dollars for immoral legislation. One day we were riding and we slammed on the brakes and Ron, we were like, we gotta, we gotta stop. We went outside. I have the picture I can show you, but there's an IVF clinic. And we had been telling them, you guys have abortion. You have IVF clinics. And many of them are hesitant to want to acknowledge that. We saw the sign, slammed on the brakes, jumped out. Ron snapped a picture of me in front of the sign. It's there. Babies frozen and then discarded. Don't tell me it's not there. We're showing them the idols. 
Money is another idol. You know you worship money if you think that simply having more would make your life better. Africans think this. Americans think this. Inflation is really, really bad here, worse, worse than other countries in many ways, but it's because we have mammon worship here, and you can't serve two masters. Nature can be an idol where men try to, to control other men through fake doctrines like climate change and global warming. They're talking about it right now because of this heat wave. It's like, do they forget it gets hot like this all the time? Nature is an idol when people teach that we evolved from apes. So those are the idol of nature. Power itself is another idol, simply being in power over others. And it could be in the family, the church, the state, when you want to dominate and control other people. Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth, and his regime in his kingdom is the only totalitarian regime. So civil governments are not entitled to do that. False religions and conceptualizations of God are also idols that must be toppled. If you have ever begun a sentence, I like to think of God like this, you have an idol. I would hasten to add that if you are prone to ignore parts of the Bible or difficult concepts, then you have possibly created an idol. If you want the priesthood of Christ but not the kingship of Christ, you have an idol. I mean, we, we've dug into a lot of these things. And it is difficult to part from an idol, but if we are serious about obeying King Jesus, we will do whatever it takes to leave them behind. I came back fired up because of this. Like, it, the idols have to be thrown in the trash. And this is part of our foreign missiology, but it's also our local missiology. Why is our culture today the way it is in America? It's because we've, we've let it happen. We, we have to root these things out, put them to death, tear them down, part with them. And it's the church's job to do this worldwide. And we need to remember that of all the idols that are available for us, the hardest one to get rid of and abandon is the self. That's the hardest one. What Zambia needs, and, and we talked about this there, worldview evangelism, um, next time I go, maybe Lord willing, next week, we're just going to go street preaching. And we're going to be looking like a bunch of weirdos, but it's going to be awesome. Because we kept telling them, this is what needs to happen. You, you, the world needs this worldview message. And I told them, look, don't wait until your culture apostatizes to do evangelism. You don't, don't wait until the Tower of Babel is built before you start warning people about the Tower of Babel. That's what we've done today. The, and the church in America is still stuck. They're still wasting time and resources and energy, propping up government education, all of this nonsense. They're still doing it. But I will tell you this, and we'll kind of wrap it up here. Probably the most special moment of the entire trip was my time with, with Charles at the Stone Hill community, a very, very, very poor, very poor community. It was just outside of Cape Town. There's 5,000 people who live there in this shanty township. They're the poorest of the poor. Throwing a couple metal things together and calling it a house. That's how bad it is. And I have pictures I can show you. Um, Charles' ministry, he has lots of ministry, but that's one of them, it includes working with, with others. They have this kind of compound they've built there. It's fenced in. 
They, they, they help feed the kids, educate them. They have like a clinic to help them with physical needs and that sort of thing. But I sat in a, in a shipping container that was converted into a meeting room with like 10 or 12 teenager, teenage boys. And uh, Charles had brought some food and drink, and he asked me to speak to them, and they're his soldiers for Christ. I uh, talked for like 30 or 40 minutes, asked some questions, you know, jumped in, and one guy, one guy showed up late, and he had to do 20 push-ups. So I vote that we do that at Cross and Crown. <laughs> I laughed because he's down there and they're all counting. One, two, three, four. But like he calls them soldiers of Christ. Teenage boys, ranging like 13, 14, up to like 17, I think maybe was the oldest. And so um, I hadn't really prepared anything because I didn't even know what to expect. I knew I was going, but I didn't, you know, the dynamic, you have no idea. So I sit there and he's like, all right, talk to them for like 30 minutes. I was like, Okay, well, let's go to Genesis 2.15. We just kind of started there. We talked about Adam's responsibility to protect and, and work and protecting others, working hard, taking care of our corner of the garden world. We didn't sit there and go through the Romans road. We went through and said, this is how you become a man. Um, what a, it was an amazing time. One of the young men there was recently attacked by another somebody who had a knife, and he was able to disarm the guy with the knife and give him a whooping, which was great, as I understand it. But since the attacker went to the police first, the young man is facing jail time. All because the South African government is a communist, unjust government that God hates. And by the way, people... You all think, and rightly think, when Charles shot back, that that was a moment of glory, like hallelujah. A lot of people hated him for that. Because they think that that was violent and he was no better than them. So he's supposed to just let them kill a bunch of people. Like, why do people think that way? There's an idol there. There's something there. But this poor young man is facing jail time because he got to the cops first, which is basically how it works. If you get to the police first, then you're in the right. And then you're basically guilty until proven innocent. But I spoke with these young men about planning for the future, controlling their lusts, exercising sound judgment, and so on. A big joke was whether or not we had any ladies in our church for them to marry. And one guy said, I'll give you 50 cows, <laughs> which is funny because I said, well, I would need 50 chickens too. Well, I didn't realize this until we left. Charles, we were driving back to his place. And he's like, those guys laughed when you turned him down because that's the equivalent of like a Ferrari. And I'm like, no, it's still not enough. <laughs> I didn't know. It's like 50 cows. How about it? That's the dowry payment. So if anybody's interested in that, like, you don't have 50 cows, dude. What are you talking about? <laughs> it was quite funny, though. But they seemed really appreciative of it. And, and I'll definitely never forget that moment. But perhaps... Uh, Perhaps the best part was the fact that someone like Charles, and then even me in that moment, because Charles, we, we think similarly, but he's been there, not, not to teach them to go to heaven gospel, but to teach them self-discipline and maturity and wisdom and sound judgment. And these young men were getting their idols confronted, their folly called to an account, their entire paradigms realigned by the gospel of the kingdom. And like, that is discipleship. That's what it looks like. 
not going and giving them a meal, snapping a photo. Hey, cool. Do you love Jesus? Awesome. All right. That's the only thing I came to tell you. And then we leave. And then all of their cultural assumptions are still there. But if there's one thing I could say to sum this all up, the world is never going to change if all we're doing is punching with kid gloves on. The world is never going to change if we're unwilling to say the hard things. It's never going to change if we aren't willing to repent of our idols and treat them with violent contempt. And I'm not even just talking about the idols of your heart. I'm talking the idols of the United States government. Every, every, between your heart and D.C., everything in between. If we're not willing to treat them with violent contempt, we're never going to see anything happen. We're not going to see a reformation until we resolve to be utterly surrendered in every area of life to the will of God in Christ Jesus. And I got back and on the plane, I was just thinking the whole time, they're still killing babies here in the West and Christians are still busy playing church. And that's it. And we, we, we must repent. And I'll say what I said to them last week. God will raise up his Gideons to crush the idols. He will raise up his Elijahs to put the prophets of Baal to death. But he will not do, what he will not do is bless unfaithfulness. God blesses those who are faithful to his gospel and to his law. And he will not bless a nation that would rather have their than do the hard work to dust. So may the Lord empower a new generation of laborers to gladly work in the vineyard of Christ's kingdom for the glory and praise of the King. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are, are good and gracious and glorious. You have taught us so much in your word. You have given us what we need for life, what we need for godliness. And I pray that you would strengthen us. May our hearts be full of joy, Lord, to, to see your global church at work. And I, and I pray, Lord, I pray for Ron, who's coming back soon, and I, for his work there. But I pray that you would, would bless our efforts here as a church as we seek to disciple the nations. Help us to be present here in this culture. And not just assume that certain things are, are supposed to be the way that they are. And then get comfortable with it but rather see the evil for what it is and be willing to slap it around, to be contemptuous toward it, to treat it like you treat it, as evil and something that must be eradicated. So may we be soldiers like these soldiers in Stonehill. May you bless our friends overseas, the pastors and missionaries at work who are doing the really difficult things May you sustain them, provide for their needs, and help us, Lord, as we seek to do the same here. May you be gracious to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.